Welcome to The Innovative Executive, the show that helps you make innovation a priority in your business. Innovation strategy consultant Bella Rushi helps you rethink your business model, embrace collaboration, and leverage technology. If you want to drive innovation and bring new growth to your business, then stay tuned as she meets industry experts who share practical experience to help you unlock your innovation potential. And now, here's Bella Rushi. Today on my show, we have John Rossman, a former director of Amazon, business advisor, and a keynote speaker and author of three books, The Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles, Think Like Amazon, 50 and a Half Ideas to Become a Digital Leader, and The Amazon Way on IoT. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Bella, great to see you. I wanted to um, start the conversation with the effect that the pandemic has on all the businesses in general. We used to have this abundant thinking mindset relating to materialistic things, especially. We had access to pretty much everything whenever we wanted it. But today, abundance thinking is not on top of mind with supply chain shortages, issues of workers, chips, raw materials, and other goods. What can you think companies can do to design for the scarcity thinking mindset to make businesses more positive and productive? Well, it's it's a good question. Everything you say is absolutely true. I'm an industrial engineer by background. So honestly, I, I always am applying the theory of constraints and how to accomplish more with less, less resources, less waste, less time, less cost. And I think the, the key for me in any type of change endeavor is getting really crisp and clear on exactly like what's the goal of the change that you're making and focus in on that and then generalize back out. What did we learn by solving for this problem? How can we apply it to other situations? And so in this conversation on constraints, I think making specific targeted goals, perhaps it's on lead times or on inventory levels or on a cost or quality aspect, and then designing backward from, you know, that specific objective and identifying, well, you know, what would have to be true in order for that to actually be the case. And then again, like once you solve uh, for that, then generalizing back out and always asking the question like, well, what did we learn from this and how can we apply that to other circumstances? That's how you improve your general pattern recognition and reusability of concepts and kind of a questioning mindset and culture. Yeah, I love that. I think you said some key points, actually, I want to follow up on. You talked about reusability and, you know, the theory on constraint. This year, one of the top global trends is sustainability. So everyone's thinking about sustainability, all the companies, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. And I think that they can do a lot of the things that you just said in terms of reusability or making sure they're having constraints in terms of how to do packaging or maybe even you know, extending a product's life cycle. What else can you share in terms of at least this global trend that everyone's going to be talking about and actually focusing on this year in terms of sustainability? Again, I come back to like 
put a metric to it, define a use case, get specific about these broad terms like sustainability or digital transformation. Like they're interesting from a marketing and category definition need, but they're really hard to operate against, right? It's really hard to problem solve for that. And so don't languish with ambiguity get in, define specific either metrics and quantifiable goals or qualifiable um, goals and use cases, and then solve to those specifics. And that will help you really bring to life and manifest these abstract terms that, again, are good for marketing, but are not helpful to actually solve against. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you you also hit on a couple other points. I found an example of of this of like, I don't know how it hasn't been implemented yet, but I think MasterCard is doing some kind of program with this Swedish think tank company called Dokami, I think. And they're also working with the UN uh, climate change. And it's basically developing this credit card where it tallies the carbon footprint of a user's purchases. And then when they exceed all their a carbon budget for the year, it actually cuts them off. So it'll be interesting to follow this new idea that's going to be out there. Yeah, and it would be really interesting to see whether that actually changes behavior, whether it accomplishes like what the real end goal here is, which is, I think, awareness and purchasing changes that are tied to a sustainability effort. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move on to a couple of things I read in your books. You talk a lot about technology in pretty much all three of your books and the different uses of technology. So what can you share that will provide companies on the importance of having a technology-driven strategy? And, you know, Amazon is successful today because obviously they have that amazing technology-driven strategy. Yeah, I would reframe or kind of flip the observation there, which is in general, I would say, don't have a technology-driven strategy, have a customer-driven or market-driven strategy, and then harness technology and other techniques that help you accomplish those specific goals. So Amazon's mentality around, you know, innovation and strategy on one angle is called start with the customer and work backwards. And it really is about starting with end points in mind and working backwards to how you solve it. And you apply all of these different technologies and tools to help you accomplish a specific mission versus, and I've seen this a lot in companies, which is they have a new toy, a new technology, and they ask the question, well, how can I deploy uh, that technology? I think that tends to create lopsided, inefficient outcomes that don't, at the end of the day, truly get adopted and used widely. They're interesting in helping to build some experience, perhaps with a tool or a technology, but they don't tend to go to production, to scale, and really have a business outcome that you need. So I would really focus with specific types of strategies and then work backwards and being nimble to, well, what are all of the combination of tools and and agile techniques that we need in order to launch, experiment, evaluate, adjust, and scale relative to a new a new capability. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I think you're uh, spot on. I've, I've seen I've seen companies where they develop something and they're excited 
and then they launch it and then they realize this is not what the customer wanted it. There's a lot of cases in a lot of different industries where you see this, but definitely starting with the customer first and then leveraging, I guess, is the key word to drive that strategy. One other thing I'll, I'll add on to that. I mean, that's the book I recently released is the Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles. So there's 14 leadership principles, actually now 16 leadership principles. The first and the most famous is about customer obsession, and it reads that leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust, and while they pay attention to competitors, they obsess about customers. And if you can insert that customer-centric mindset and approach of problem-solving and envisioning the future and designing solutions, it solves so many problems. It helps solve organizational boundary problems. It creates better outcomes. It creates empathy for your customers. You tend not to focus. You focus less on things that don't matter to customers, which are like your product boundaries, your organizational boundaries, your company boundaries. And it creates this exploratory mindset through the job of what your customer is trying to do. And so I think so much of the change challenge is about the beliefs and the cultures, which is what leadership is about, and that companies and people truly can learn new techniques. Like leadership is a process, as a set of steps. It's not this ethereal a quality that you either have or don't have, you can actually build these things in an organization. That's what I do with companies, with leadership teams, is how do you combine leadership and culture with strategy in order to innovate and create better outcomes? And that, I believe, is the puzzle pieces that you have to figure out in order to innovate on a more systemic basis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there is, you know, tons of data. And this year, I think, A lot of the data is focused on personalization data and they're asking for permissions. You know, can we use further data on you, whether it's driving or whatever you're doing, healthcare? There is a lot of data that absolutely many companies can use this information to, as you say, work backwards and and, um, create new products or services. There's also been an acceleration of digital commerce growth last year, right? We've seen that because of the pandemic. Yes, in a major way. Yeah. And what I've seen from my assignments last year is that a lot of the marketing and the e-commerce teams within the organization are separate teams. They don't talk to each other. They're, we're finding that there's no alignment on their budget. They don't have the same brand metrics. Uh, they're not shared with each other. And also they use, as we talked about technology, they do use outdated technology at least what I've seen from my assignments. What can you share with us about Amazon's advertising capabilities? What do their internal structure look like? I think the the real root cause is isn't so much an organizational one. Any organization strategy or structure that you have will have strengths and weaknesses to it. So for example, in the one that you're talking about where advertising might be separated out from uh, the go-to-market uh, organization, the PL holding organization, there can be value in having a focused advertising team in terms of uh, skills, resource sharing, technology stack, all of those aspects. But the weakness can be in kind of the alignment to the business and other stakeholders to that. But If you make an organizational switch, then you lose some of the benefits of that other organization structure. So the goal is always 
respect organization structures and job titles for the things that they're good at, but don't respect them for the things that they get in the way of. So in this particular case, the org structure, jobs and titles are getting in the way of gaining alignment and collaboration and goal setting. So what you need to do is put in a mechanism, a set of mechanisms or techniques in, well, how do we problem solve relative to that? So simple things like creating not an organizational goal or plan, but just a goal and a plan for a customer or market and ensure that that is built in collaboration with all of the key stakeholders and that you continue to gain alignment to what are the roles and responsibilities and the assumptions and the risks relative to that. And you have active meetings relative to metrics and accomplishments and especially featuring the bad news, like the problems that are going on and make it so that it's everybody's mission, regardless of organization structure, because organization structure, again, like they're one dimensional, they they help in one thing only, they're always going to get in the way. So I hesitate to change org structure as an approach to problem solving these things, because it's a lot of effort creates a lot of turmoil and, in my mind, unnecessary change where there's already so much change we have to do. And they just create another weakness that at some point you're going to face down the road. So I would think about compensating mechanisms to help problem solve for the situation or the issue that you're talking about. Yeah, I love it that you said to start focusing on the goals, right? And they'll help you create that alignment then talking about, okay, how are we going to get these teams together and how are we going to reorganize it or maybe even change the names of the departments, right? So that's a great example. And that's a great way to actually look at this. And again, also working backwards from the customer. That's that's a fantastic point here. In your book, I think your recent one, the Amazon way, uh, Amazon's 14th leadership principles, I really liked it where you talked about this new member that had just recently joined and she had a day one mindset and she was asking a lot of questions. Why is it important, not just for managers and directors, but also for executives to have this day one mindset um, in decision making? Yeah. So, you know, this day one uh, mentality and concept is one of Bezos' long-running concepts for Amazon. So I I launched and scaled the third-party marketplace business at Amazon 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. And this was alive back then. And, And what it means is that we're optimistic about the future. We're always going to be trying to invent and create the future, not just holding on and trying to optimize for today's and that we're long-term investors. And and so, you know, the day one mentality is manifested in many ways, but it's about experimenting patiently, planting seeds, accepting failure, you know, doubling down on concepts when you get the most important feedback of all, which is customer adoption and and customer delight on, on a concept. And so it's really a concept that helps roll up all of these other optimistic innovation aspects that you need to put in place in a concept. And so it's Bezos 
reminder to Amazon about stay true to the heritage of the company, which is entrepreneurial, planting seeds, thinking long-term, put the customer first. That's uh, perfect. When I think of day one mindset, I think of leadership awareness, but what goes inside leadership awareness and how do they maintain that? Because that's something it's easy to lose. And I think you hit on a key few points, you know, in terms of constantly doing the experimentation, you know, how do you see adoption in the market with your customers? I mean, when you're doing those things, you have to have the awareness, right? You have to have that leadership awareness to make the right decisions or to move forward and kind of be like an explorer. And that's why I think, you know, leadership principles and stories and anecdotes that are shared among everybody, especially the senior leadership, are so important because it's cool if kind of one person is talking about this. But if the entire organization can have a common frame of how do we operate? How do we make decisions? How do we hold each other accountable? What do we believe in? How do we work? Then you can really get a team that is consistently or more consistently operating with the same tempo and the same tone. And that's what your culture becomes. And it's it's when just one culture, one leader or one team has a perspective and it's the right perspective, but it isn't widely adopted. You know, that's where you get just partial adoption, partial impact, and where it really doesn't become the culture of an organization. And that's what tends to happen in companies and why I think starting with leadership, senior leadership, and what do we believe in? How are we going to change relative to the new challenges that we have in the market? How are we going to add to and and refresh some of our, our perspectives so that we create an innovative system in our company, that's where real change starts and why I start with leadership and culture and then go into some of these other mechanisms around like, well, how do we actually experiment? How do we vet new ideas? How do we create uh, business cases for the right moment, for the right uh, reasons? Those are the mechanisms that you have to put in place. But if you don't get leadership, senior leadership alignment, you're not going to have lasting change. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Leadership and culture. I think you hit on again a couple other key points, you know, to really uh, drive new growth um, in in this sense. So, speaking of leadership and culture, I wanted to talk about the two of my favorite companies in terms of goal is that Fuji Films and 3M, right? So, Fuji Films. Today, they're making active pharma products, consumer products. They do contract manufacturing. This was a film company that just made, you know, regular film, you know, a long time ago. And 3M, we know that it's a technology company that's diversified into manufacturing, industrial safety, and consumer products. So these companies certainly have diversified their portfolio and have a consistent pipeline of new products. And very few industries have this mindset except for the pharma industry, which we know that, you know, that's already embedded into their DNA to make new drugs. So in terms of culture and, you know, leadership, how does Amazon create a pipeline of new products and how did they learn to have the same mindset? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, pharma companies understand this concept of a portfolio of concepts or bets 
and a pipeline and a specific process. And, and, and that's, that's really the essence of a system for innovation. So Amazon is not a pharma company, but they do have a portfolio and it's messy is what I would say relative to how it happens. But ideas and concepts can come from anywhere. You're always asked to justify and explain and debate your concepts. And they have this culture of writing. And this is a lot of what I explain in my books is this culture of writing. They do six-page narratives. They do a technique, an envisioning technique called future press releases. They do FAQs. And they do all of this writing and debating and thinking things through before they build things, right? And so that they're much better at understanding the options, the trade-offs, how it might work, what the size of the market is, what the size of the problem is, why they would do this, what's the justification before they actually proceed on it. And then there's an annual uh, process called OP1 where both business plans and these ideas get debated, resources get allocated, they make decisions on the big things about what to proceed with, what not uh, proceed with, which is really critical. And then there's adjustments kind of below that at the team level and, and throughout the year. But the heart of it is, A, the leadership and culture, the day day one aspect, the customer obsession aspect, knowing your details is really important. And it's manifested through these techniques of writing out your concepts and writing out how you're going to proceed on it and getting a group to debate that thoroughly. Instead of using PowerPoint and abstracting things It gets really expensive when you start prototyping and actually building things like people think that's fast. That's actually that's expensive relative to a prototyping process called writing and thinking and debating as a group. I think the unique thing that Amazon does, I do this with a lot of my clients in in helping teams and leaders really envision the future and then debate the options in the past to get there by writing these out more thoroughly than than what they're used to. And it's amazing how hard it is. And it's amazing the impact that it has in their thinking. And we'll start in one place with a notion and we'll end up in a different place at a high level is kind of the same concept, the same notion, but a completely different value proposition, a completely different view on how we're going to accomplish it, what the risks are and how to proceed on it than we started at. And so it really adds value before you get into the development and prototyping phases. Yeah, no, this is great. So like, it's definitely important. You know, I think to point out that it's harder for companies outside the pharma industry to have that push or even the mindset, why are we doing this? Or when should we stop? When is enough enough? Or when are we not going to, when do you stop exploring? And I think to have the mindset that you don't stop exploring is very important. And that these uh, techniques and these practices that Amazon has within the culture really helps constantly, you know, build those innovative products for that company. And the second thing right behind the leadership culture is, you, you know, you have to resource this stuff, right? You have to be willing to, to spend and allocate real resources against it and know that this doesn't always look like it's efficient. And separating out that notion of when are we operating, and those are the things that we're more predictable on and we're, we're shooting for 
predictability, forecasting, optimizing growth versus when are we experimenting? And that's more of a wandering exercise, right? And and so at times it's going to feel like we're wasting things. And so the, the very mindset and mechanisms that we put in place to operate on, if you apply those to when you're experimenting, you squash them, right? You, you'll kill the, the, what's needed in that. And so separating out operating versus experimenting and wandering is a really important aspect. That doesn't mean you have to create a separate organization. You just have to recognize when you're operating and when you're wandering and then apply the right management science to it. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Thank you, John. I wanted to ask you before we close, we're running out of time. So I wanted to ask you one last question. What is a commonly held belief in your industry that you personally disagree with? I don't know if I'll answer your question exactly, but I believe that most that there is still a massive opportunity for process definition and process automation that companies haven't even begun exploring yet. And that the current environment that we're in talking about, looping it back to the constraints question that you asked me at the top, the constraint around labor, the constraint around cost is going to create opportunities for companies to really, you know, re-engineer their work in a very different way and work to eliminate, work to simplify, and then work to automate. So that's why I think the the category of robotic process automation, RPA, is a really interesting technology sector. I think it will look back in 10 years and go, man, those were pretty generation one tools we're using. I think that there's fast change going on in the RPA category that will make it really interesting. And companies need to get started on really reducing friction and engineering the work that goes on in their organizations much more uh, granular and on a much more deliberate basis to take advantage of the automation opportunities that they have in front of them. Yeah, I know that's perfect. I know life science industries are definitely taking advantage of some of the automation work in terms of, you know, doing research and and finding um, new solutions. I think you will see a new category of company that competes completely differently, competes with a completely different cost and speed basis because they've been engineered from the bottom up with process automation in mind. So that's that's maybe my my belief of an unheld uh, truth is that is that there will be a completely new generation of automation first organizations. Yeah, perfect. Well. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you as a guest, and I'm sure our listeners are really going to value everything you had talked about today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Amazon Waves at Amazon and Paperback, Kindle, and Audible, and uh, I appreciate the conversation. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Innovative Executive with Bella Rushi, founder of Symmetry Consulting, a firm that specializes in helping companies embed innovation into their company. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, make sure to check out Bella's book, The Innovative Executive, leading intelligently in the age of disruption. Join us for the next episode to further unlock your innovation potential.